I always think of Wilma Mankiller, an indigenous leader who once was seen wearing a, a necklace with two horses, a dark one and a, and a bright one. And someone asked her, what was that? And she said, they're both part of me, my shadow and my light. And I would lie to you if I tell you I'm only the light horse and not the dark horse as well. And I would say the same thing, that our shadow is like a, being in a horse carriage with a, with a light horse and a shadow horse. And if, if we don't put the rein on both horses, the shadow is going to keep on coming out. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Meta Hour podcast with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets all the everyday life. My name is Lily Cushman, and I'm the longtime producer for this podcast. And today, for episode 204, we're bringing you another episode in the Real Life podcast series. This is a five-part series we're doing in celebration of Sharon's new book by the same name, Real Life. And that book is coming out April 11th. So there's all kinds of exciting things we're doing as part of that book launch, one of which is called Living an Authentic Life Summit. And the reason I mentioned the summit is that today's interview is actually pulling from that summit. This is a five-day online offering that's happening with over 30 different speakers, and it's all centered around themes from Sharon's book. So as part of that, we wanted to bring some of those interviews here to the podcast. They're just too good to not share with this audience. So today's episode is a portion of one of those interviews. And the speaker is Zainab Salbi. And she's actually been on the Meta Hour once before. She's an incredible humanitarian, author, speaker. And her topic for the summit has all to do with these states of narrow constriction that we often encounter in life, as opposed to more expansive states of openness. And so today's conversation is all in that theme, looking at what happens when we're constricted, what we lose in those places. And Zainab shares a lot of her personal story, both being a child growing up in wartime, but also her humanitarian aid work which primarily focuses on supporting women who are victims of wartime as well. I do want to mention that this episode does touch on some pretty heavy subjects. Just so you're aware, going into it, there is mention of sexual assault and violence. So you can go into the episode with some awareness of that. And as I mentioned before, this is just a portion of the larger interview that Zainab and Sharon have in the summit itself. You can still join that summit for free if you go to SharonSalzberg.com. It's running from March 29th to April 2nd and is totally free to join. So aside from that, I have a couple announcements for you before we get into the episode. 
Firstly, a big thank you to anyone who's pre-ordered the book. It's always a huge help to us, to Sharon as an author. It really does help bring the book into a wider audience. And if you don't know, we are offering a couple of free guided meditations for anybody that's pre-ordered the book. So if you've done that, please go collect your goodies, your gifts. The information is at SharonSalzberg.com. And lastly, I want to mention a book launch event that is happening on the 11th of April, hosted by the Insight Meditation Society Book Club. And for that, Sharon is going to be interviewed by the wonderful Dan Harris, who's the author of 10% Happier and host of the 10% Happier podcast. He will be interviewing Sharon along with Joanna Hardy, talking about the book, the themes from the book, and just a fun way to come together and bring it into the world. So that is also a free event. And you guessed it, SharonSalzberg.com is the place to go. So that's all the info I have for you today. And without further ado, here is today's episode. So hello and welcome back to The Summit. I'm Sharon Salzberg and I have the great pleasure of speaking with humanitarian Zainab Salbi on today's topic of contraction. Together we'll look into what causes these states of like limitation and narrow-mindedness and feeling trapped and ways we can work to help ourselves grow to places of expansion and openness. In addition to her work as a humanitarian, Zainab is an author and journalist. Oprah Winfrey identified her as one of the 25 women changing the world to People Magazine. Zainab is the co-founder for DaughtersForEarth.com, chief awareness officer at FindCenter.com, and host of Redefined Podcast. At the age of 23, Zainab founded Women for Women International, a humanitarian organization dedicated to women survivors of war. Zainab is also the author of several books, including the national bestseller Between Two Worlds and her latest, Freedom is an Inside Job. So welcome. I'm so glad that you're here with us today. What a pleasure to be with you, Sharon. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you. Can you start off with a little background about yourself? Say, how did you come to found Women for Women at such a young age? Well, I grew up in Iraq, um, and there are three things that really impacted, I would say, my life, most of my life until I did healing work on it. <laughs> um, and uh, one is war. I grew up in the midst of Iran-Iraq war, and at a very young age, I realized that, oh, the news covers war only from how men see it, only from the front line, because I'm seeing the TV and I'm living in it. And the front lines are the men and the soldiers and the tanks and all of that. But as a child, my experience of war was my mother and all the women who were keeping life going. The school teachers were women. The police women were women. Then my mother is a woman. Like everyone was. The factory people were women. The doctors were women. Everyone was a woman. And they were nowhere in the discussion in the news. So that very much impacted 
how I saw the world and my work. I also grew up with a family that um, my father was Saddam Hussein's personal pilot, and I grew up close to Saddam Hussein, uh, calling him uncle. And that being close to a dictator, that's the title of my memoir, Between Two Worlds, we were afraid of him because he killed his best friends and his relatives. The people were afraid of us. We were afraid of everyone else. It was like stuck between two worlds. But that relationship haunted me for the longest time in my life. And it sort of was the reason why I left Iraq at the age of 19, almost 20, and came to America. The last influence of my life is my mother. You know, it's interesting because a lot of times when people talk about women in war, they talk about them as victims. And women in wars indeed face a lot of the victimization, in not only in terms of violence and rape, but also in terms of displacements. They are the majority of displaced people in the world. But I actually, you know, inspired by my mother and the thousands of women I end up working with afterwards, I think women also are the carriers of not only life, keeping life going in war, but this is a, a phrase that I've been really contemplating on it and thinking about with some friends. They are, they pass what I would call intergenerational joy, intergenerational joy. And we talk only about trauma, but there's also, and it was like my friends and I were talking and about what is intergenerational joy. And when I think of my mother in war, I can think either about the sirens and her several attempts to commit suicide and her cries and tears. Or I can think also, not or, and also, this is a woman who, in the midst of raids, she would play a puppet show for us kids to keep us laughing and joyful in the midst of fear, right? And these things, Sharon, all impacted the person I became. And I would have to say, I became for the longest time. And then you do work, you address the work, you address the trauma, you address it. And I address it in many ways, both through my work, through my writing, and of course, through healing and working on myself. You know, it's so interesting because to live a day where I can look at all that life story that used to make me cry a lot, to like look at it with smile and gratitude to say, oh my God. Thank you, God, I had this life story because it made me who I am today. You know, this whole story, it led me to believe that there's always goodness out of um, any challenge. And there is definitely the triumph of hope and joy that ultimately can triumph. Yeah, that's so beautiful. You know, I was talking to somebody not too long ago, and they were talking about fight or flight and the, the nervous system's reaction to stress, to trauma, to an ordeal of some kind. and and saying something like, they wish there was another way. And there is another way that science is very rarely but occasionally talked about, which one way is called tend and befriend. In those same stressful, challenging, even traumatic circumstances, rather than either fight, flight, or freeze, which they also have added, there's tending and befriending, which one would associate with like a maternal image. Finding the people you need to care for, befriending them, nurturing them. Yeah, that's so beautiful. And you know what I would add is when flight or fright is the only option we have, we don't know that there is another option. There are times yeah. in life yeah. where we don't need to fight or fright. You know, like there are times in life we need to stop actually that behavior and be okay with 
being, you know. Lovely. That's great. So, you know, so many times somebody might look at the kind of impact you've had on the lives of so many women and, and think, surely she's got it all, you know, she's got it all figured out. She's got it all together, but we know that isn't always the case, you know? And I wonder if you could share with us about your first meditation retreat and what circumstances led you to go to it. You know, I really appreciate this question. I was talking with a former colleague of mine from Iraq and I worked, I mean, I, when I started Women at Women International when I was 23 years old, I worked all over the wars and one of them ended up being my own home country. And, um, so I mentioned it only in that context. I, I also worked in all over the world, in Africa and Europe and all of that, in Asia. And he was telling me that he's like, you know, when you came to work, Zainab, we thought that you are this like woman who had life under control. <laughs> we didn't know you were suffering so much. Like he has like no idea. And I really appreciate it. And this is, was literally yesterday. He's telling me that. I appreciate it because like all of us give the pretense of one thing. You know, that the image is one thing, but that was like what's going on is instead, as I said, different thing. It's like seeing an ocean and you see the the top of it and under it, there's a whole life. And so here I am at one point in my life. I don't know if it's the peak of my success or not. I hope there's more coming or or not. Doesn't matter. But it was in a successful moment in my life. And all what I could think inside me is I was a failure. And that I had failed in accomplishing what I was set up to do. And literally, it was a time in which some of the acknowledgement that you read in my introduction, I was getting it right, left and center. Oprah, Foreign Policy Magazine, The Guardian, all of that. But inside of me, I couldn't accept any of that. And I literally thought I was a failure. And so I go to without knowing what I'm signing up to, to a four-day silent retreat, Zen silent retreat in New York. And I honestly, I meditate, but never been in a silent retreat. And it was the most honestly amazing experience that I would say rewired my being, one of the experiences that rewired my being. Because the first day I you know, just hash through all my failures and, and trying to understand what am I failing and why and what do I feel? And it's all of it, the shame, the sorrow, the embarrassment, the, you know, hating oneself, like all of it, all of it, right? The second day I would go, it's almost like a pimple and you're like squeezing every inch of the pus, you know, and it's all, again, all the feelings in it. And it kept on going through every single feeling and looking at it in the eyes rather than avoiding it because there's nothing else to do, right? You're just silent. Until all I can say is that the fourth day, it felt that my soul was free. Like there was a distinction between my soul, which was a free soul and was joyous soul and between all this other part of me that felt the shame and the embarrassment and the um, whatever it is that I felt at the time, right? Shame. There was a lot of shame and guilt. And to arrive a point where to see my soul is actually a free soul and is not attached to how the world is identifying me or seeing me or even how am I seeing myself, you know? And got to that point of freedom. And you know what was so beautiful about that? Not only that I felt that feeling, is that after that retreat, I went 
to people who have supported me in my life in this particular thing that I was working on. And I went to them and I said, I need to tell you I failed and I'm acknowledging my failure to you. So at first I had to work on my shame. I mean, first I had the shame. First I had to acknowledge it and see it in the eyes. Then realizing I am not that. Then actually being able to articulate it to the very people that I was embarrassed to articulate it to. And here's the funny response. All of them laughed. <laughs> and like literally, I was like, I, I sat down down. It's like I need to tell you, I really failed. I'm really embarrassed. And almost everyone laughed and they're like, ah, you know, yeah, 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 you didn't fail. I'm like, no, I did not accomplish what I was set up to do. And they're like, you didn't fail. You don't worry. Life is about a process. And this is part of the process. And you actually didn't fail in what you're doing. You just didn't do it the complete way that, that you wanted to do. And it took me a while to even accept that, to mm-hmm. accept that the forgiveness and the love, we cannot just say it, that we actually need to experience it in ourselves. And for me, the only way I could do it, I could really be thoroughly authentic in these expressions is to go inward, 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 and go through the experiences and come to that forgiveness and love and understanding I am. It's not I am what I do, but I am. It's, uh, I almost came to the conclusion after many meditation retreats after like that is to the point of saying, how dare you ask, who am I? I am. How dare you ask putting my labels on myself by what I do? I am. But that that is the value of being. It's beautiful. You know, we're not taught, of course, many of us are not taught about a sense of innate dignity or innate worth. And so we think we have to earn it. We have to do something to deserve it. And the standards are impossible. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just impossible. And we're always either held to a different account by others or we're doing it internally one way or probably both, you know, for many of us. But, you know, there's a world of expectation which does not allow for mystery, doesn't allow for gradual unfolding. It doesn't allow for interrelatedness. You know, sometimes you do something toward the good, you plant a seed. You don't get to see it flower right away. And then we think, well, nothing happened. But maybe, you know, you did that and something flowered and it rippled out and then it went, you know, had all kinds of consequences. And I know it's hard. Of course, we have work to do and responsibility to funders and, you know, all kinds of things that you do want to have a a standard of, of excellence and and so on. But can we also allow this other truth? And when we don't, then I think you saw the immediate consequences of that and all those feelings. It's so true. I mean, and, and, you know, we live in a world where not only striving for excellence, or, and that's the expectations, but there's also, and I don't mean to make this about social media, but as an adult who is involved in social media, I have to focus and breathe most of the times not to compare myself to what I'm seeing. And I have to like say, oh my God, look at how my mind is taking me to that. And thus comparing my value and my worth versus someone else's value and worth. And both of us are coming with a facade of like, you know, the viewer and the and the one who's presenting is just showing a layer of just a facade of who are we really, right? And so I say that because we are living in this era and I have such compassion and empathy for younger generations who have not yet had the chance to 
understand the value of self to be I am and understand the spectrum of time that allows you to give uh, different values. Like the joy in your heart is as valuable as the external success. The love for all the reasons and no reasons is as valuable as having a real romantic love. You know, <laughs> like these things that you grow to work on it. And I have such compassion with younger generation who may not have the tool yet, yet. Mm-hmm. To, to get that because it's, I understand why there is such high rate of depression and all of that because it's constantly comparing ourselves to others' accomplishments and a glimpses of others' lives. Yeah, and there's so many ways social media included that feelings of unworthiness and shame and self-doubt are almost like poured into us. Yeah. You know, and you need a place to stand in order to say, you can come, but you can go, you know, it's like, Let's yeah. just have have that wave and let it go. So true. It is yeah. so true. So when we get involved, on the other hand, is when the world shuts down. You know, we feel so narrow. We feel so confined. We can't imagine much in the in the realm of possibility. And so aspiration also figures into this, like, or hope, you know, just having a sense of something else is possible. Something else really is possible. Um, which seems we will lose, but we can recapture in different times. It's so interesting. Um, I mean, it's so true also. And as you know, Sharon, I had a major health issue three and a half years ago that almost took my life. And the turning point in my life, because I called my life before death and after death. And the turning point was in that my last breath the question I had to my, and I thought that I'm taking my last breath, that this is it, I am dying. The question that came to me, and you know, even though I am a humanitarian and I've dedicated my life to serving marginalized people and particularly women around the world, it doesn't mean I don't have the characteristics of desire for success, accomplishments, competition. <laughs> it's just the same. I happen to have it in the humanitarian world. Someone who works in Wall Street may have the exact same desire. The feeling is the same, but he or she may have it on how much money you have, right? But the feelings are the same. The emotions, the drive is the same, right? So I'm constantly calculating how many women I've helped and da-da-da. And it's you know, and never is enough, never is enough, never is enough. Mm-hmm. Again, same psychology of some wealthy people, like uh, people, and it's like, never is enough, never is enough. Like, how much is enough, right? The same, same psychology. And yet, in my last breath, the question was not, did I accomplish enough? The question was not, did I help enough people or did I have enough things at all? That things is never in my psychology to start with. But the question became, did I live my life in kindness to myself? And to others, but not the far away others, the others in front of me. Because the far away others is easier to live in kindness and in love. The near away, <laughs> near others harder and to you is the hardest, right? And did I live my life in love to myself and, and to others? And the truth of the matter, the answer was no. And again, my facade as a humanitarian is I am this person who gives, and I do. It's, that doesn't negate the, 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 the actual accomplishments. And what ultimately being this frail and this fragile and, and my tools 
were taken away from me. My communication tools, my ability to write, to think, to, were all taken away for a year and a half, right? But at that year and a half, I came out of it with utter joy, complete, complete joy and love and connection to my heart, to earth, which I feel like it's my best friend right now, as a result to each other, to other people, and for me, to the divine and to God. I mean, it's just, and it was out of, none of it came from things that books or women helped or accomplishments. <laughs> I didn't even occur to me these external things that we brag about and we post about and all of that. What's important is internal. And, you know, of course, family and friends, but, and I was grateful to be surrounded with family and friends who loved me, but they couldn't give me that love and joy. You know, that the joy and the love had to come from within. And so I realized at the end is that it's about permitting ourselves to go there. The only difference is permitting ourselves to be in kindness and in love and in joy to ourselves. And and because there is such a negative value on it, you know, or you're selfish or whatever. But to permit that, the going to that place is what we actually need to experience in order for the rest of it. You know, since my new life, again, I'm co-founded Daughters for Earth, helping so many women who are working on climate solutions. I'm like the fierceness and there comes back again. It's like, but it didn't define me. And it wasn't the point of my identity as I was dying and thinking that I'm about to come from the divine, basically. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. You sort of remind me of several things that are coming up in my mind. One was um person I knew who was considering taking a, a job, a certain job, and he'd already kind of um stepped away from that kind of work world and was doing other things and, and feeling quite fulfilled, but this opportunity came up and he was sort of saying, Should I do it, should I not do it? And it would mean like a lot of change again, you know, in terms of being busy and being engrossed and not being home and young children and things like that. But he just couldn't decide. And then uh, someone said to him, uh, you know, someone he was close to said, I'm just worried that when you're dying, you'll be on your deathbed and you'll regret not taking the job. And I said to him, I don't think so. Like, <laughs> I've never heard of anybody, you know, having that particular thought pattern. At that moment in time, you know, anybody like it's true, it's true. Yeah. It comes to love at the end, you know. <laughs> yes, it's true. <laughs> at the end of the day, what matters is love around us and inside us, really. And you see that love in the nurses and the doctors, and of course, family and friends. And you know, I mean, I even want to, I mean, I was privileged to have family and friends around me. But frankly, there are people who showed up, colleagues, acquaintances that I didn't even know them that much. And that showed love. So love, you see it every, like that's what ma matters. Love, the beauty of what humans create, the beauty of this earth. You know, these, the very basic. I wish someone told me <laughs> before. Right. I would not have wasted some time on being miserable, you know. <laughs> well, it does, especially I think in those circles where you're giving and you're taking care and, and so on. I mean, we call them caregivers, right, in this in this country. And it could be in your family. It could be professionally. It could be just that's the role you tend to take with people, much more a giver than a receiver. And 
there's a lot of beauty to that, you know, and there's a lot of strength to that. But it's not a small number of people who crash and burn, not really at all, because in the end, there's a, a balancing that needs to happen. And so we have to be able to receive as well as to give, and we have to be able to take in the joy as well as acknowledge the incredible sorrow. And and we need to be able to put all our hearts into something with wisdom. Like, I'm not in charge of the universe, and no one's going to make me in charge of the universe, which is a very sad commentary. <laughs> In some ways, because if I were in charge of the universe, I assert, it would be a lot better a world. But guess what? It's not that way. And so we find, if we can, those balances, and it's, it's a very different kind of work in those times. And so I'm very curious now, since you brought up love, my favorite topic, it's love as you face your own shame and your own self-doubt, and those very states arise. And the need for that presence there rather than feeling, oh, these are the enemies of that love and therefore it, it has no place here. For some reason, I'm tearing up as you mentioned that. That just means for me, it's when I hear truth, it's, uh, it touches my heart. None of us are perfect, right? It's impossible, that, that perfection. And so how do we accept the shadow of ourselves? And how do we become compassionate to it? And, you know, for the longest time, before I could even understand my shadow or see it, because we all want to give the impression that we are all good, right? But it is, by definition, impossible. <laughs> you know, what makes us human is all of the experiences, is the shame and the sorrow and the joy and the love. Like, that's what makes us humans and i'm a muslim and i'm always inspired by the 99 names of god and they are shadows of each other they are like 99 names of merciful and punishable loving and angry whatever like all the shadow of each other and the hundredth is the all-inclusive i dare say we are like that we are the contradictions of each other, of these emotions. And then the hundredth is what makes us who we are as individuals. How do we accept that? And before accepting it, for me, was if you tell me, Zainab, I felt this from your shadow, I would be scared of it and very ashamed of it. And so as a result, I would make myself, and this is very true for me, I would make myself small. So my shadow does not bother you or does not bother anybody else. And I made myself small and small and small and small, so small. Honestly, I reached a point it's like, oh my God. First of all, because when you're small, you're suffocating yourself. You are like killing yourself from inside, right? And I realized not only that, I could handle that if it was pleasing others, but no matter how small I was becoming, it was never small enough mm -hmm. for others. And so I had like this choice in front of me, accept my shadow and work on it and see it in the eyes and see, understand it or keep on killing myself, basically suffocating myself and making myself small, 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 small. So I can not have anybody criticize me or attack me or whatever it is. And when I accepted my shadow, I always think of Wilma Mankiller 
an indigenous leader who once was seen wearing a, a necklace with two horses, a dark one and a, and a bright one. And someone asked her, two wolves rather, and someone asked her, what was that? And she said, they're both part of me, my shadow and my light. And I would lie to you if I tell you I'm only the light horse and not the dark horse as well. And I would say the same thing, that our shadow is like a, being in a horse carriage with a with a light horse and a shadow horse. And if, if we don't put the rein on both horses, the shadow is going to keep on coming out and distracting us from who we are. So I had to reach a point to accept myself, to love myself, had to entail accepting and respecting my shadow. I could not love myself truly if I couldn't accept that there is this part of me as well. And I can actually, like, there's so many shadows I have. You know, I end up saying respecting my shadow because there are parts of shadows that enables me, enables all of us to actually get things done. My shadow enables me to also move mountains, stop against like oppressive leaders and speak truth to power and, you know, has a confidence. That is the good part of the character. The shadow part, it could scare people. It could be aggressive. It could be whatever. It could do all it overwhelming, right? So I had to soften your shadow. You can soften the edges of it. You can calm it down. You can put the rain on it. But it doesn't, in my experience so far, it doesn't completely go away. You are more in control of it. And you're more, when it comes, you're like, oh, there it goes. But I'm no longer willing to make myself small for it. And when people bring it up, I say, I know that is my shadow. Thank you. No one can manipulate me or or blackmail me because of my shadow. And so that was the only way I could fully love myself. And to be very honest, the only way I could fully love others is when I could fully love myself, accepting my shadow and my light, I became so much more patient and so much more loving and so much more compassionate with others because it's like, oh, there's a shadow of a person. Ah, okay, I see it. Now I have a choice whether I want to be in relation or not, but at least you're seeing us like I actually love and trust the people I see their shadows. If I don't see their shadows, mm, it worries me because it's like, oh, what's going on? What are you hiding? Right? So Show it because it's it's uh, liberating for me. It has been my liberation by accepting it and acknowledging it and making myself really to love myself is to forgive myself. And that's the only way. It's the only way I could love and forgive others for whatever things that they may or may have not done. It's really amazing. So it's so true. And it's it's in a way hard to come to, but. We can dwell in that understanding and it takes us very, very far. You know, just that one thing. Because, you know, mostly I think we are taught, it's just conditioning and habit, that we we see our own fear, we see our own shame, we see our own jealousy, and we're so embarrassed by it or we, we feel like, oh, this is who I really am. The rest of it was just a little show, you know, but this... This is essentially true about me. We kind of cling to it, identify with it in some way, and it becomes all-consuming. And it's not—it's just not onward leading, as we would say. But it can have sort of a, a moral sanctimoniousness to it. Like this is this is having a conscience. This is being, you know, a caring person. This is being somebody who wants to get things done. 
this is being a successful person. So it has kind of some stamp on it that we should be served by these states, and we're really not. But having any sense of um, disdain for what we're feeling or thinking, I've been meditating for 50 years. What's this still doing here? Or, you know, I can't ever let anyone know I feel this because look at where I am and look at how much they're giving. And we don't want to go to that side either. And so there is this terrain in the middle of those extremes, which turns out to be vast, you know, when we are actually in presence with and having kindness toward ourselves in the face of whatever it is that's appearing. You know what's so also beautiful about it as you're speaking? Once I was able to arrive there, other things like setting boundaries, like uh, knowing your ability, what you can do, what became a flow rather than an attempt, an act. Once I could truly, I hope I am there, but I do have this love and I maintain it by having one of have my rules for a seven rules of a happy day, I call it. And one of them is an appointment with my heart. And that is a sacred appointment for me. And because it's like it helps me, you know, it's like you touch the touchstone every day. And it's for me is to touch my heart, every, like our hands, my heart's hand and mine touch every day. And that keeps me in that love and in that awareness for that love, right? And once I could see that and I could see my soul, it's so much easier for me to put boundaries on anybody who's trying to cross it or for me to cross it as well, you know? And more accepting of not only my emotional being, but my physical being, to be honest, as well. You know, for me, it's like to accept this human that lives here is to, for me, is an extension of loving God, which I personally love. For me, God is, as my mother would always tell me, never think God as one thing. She said, God is in the air and God is in the flowers and in the sand and in the trees. God is everywhere. And I still believe God is everywhere, right? And everything in you, in me, all of us. And that's the only way I could like, wow, that this is God's gift. Mm -hmm. How dare I not love it? How dare I abuse it? How, I mean, like, this is a blessing. So it changes the perception for me, how I dealt with myself, with my sense of physical self, accepting myself, with my behavior, all of it. It becomes an honoring of this being that I was blessed to have in me. I was going to ask you about your seven or your toolkit for contentedness. So maybe you could go through that a bit. Yeah, no, I discovered it when I was you know, for a year and a half when I was very sick, right? Because I couldn't work and I didn't have much to do. There was, honestly, there was a lot of trial and error. And when I arrived to this point of joy, I was like, wow, I'm not working, but I'm having this. So what is it? And so I discovered. And it's always people are curious about them, but then they get, I think, disappointed when they hear it because it's one, drink a lot of water. Like literally drinking a lot of water makes me happy. Two, eat healthy food. Such basic concept, but I noticed the day I don't eat healthy food, I'm not that happy, you know? Three, 
do something in the arts. And that could be just hearing a piece of music. It doesn't matter what they're doing, being exposed to the art, you know, so music, do it or listen to it or be exposed to it. Four, connect with family and friends. You know, I used to be this person who's always busy, always traveling. Now I make sure every day there is some kind of connection with family and friends. Five, an appointment with my heart. Six, be in the presence of nature. And so I don't call it exercise. I could go for a walk. It doesn't matter. But as long as I am seeing nature, there is an exposed to nature. And then seven, live my purpose. And it's so funny because they're basic. Honestly, I like when I tell people, I feel like they think it's a very elaborate rules. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like who, like everyone can do that. Well, everyone will have their own rules, but they're basic rules, you know, human rules, I would say. And I try, I do a lot of trying. There are days in which I don't do them all. I am conscious about it. So all mm-hmm. what it gives me is a way to keep up with making sure that I am showing love and care for myself, right? And that doesn't mean at the moment, sometimes I'm busy, sometimes I'm traveling, but the day I do not do one of them, like the day I don't meditate, for example, I tell my heart, I'm sorry, I have not forgotten. I am making it up tomorrow. (laughs) And there is a connection. It becomes a conversation uh, with my body, with my heart, with my surroundings. It's great. So in your book, Freedom is an Inside Job, you speak so eloquently of the power of truth in discovering and honoring our own truth and how it's necessary for healing. Yet so often, obviously, we live our lives in a state of delusion or denial, and we're, we're taught so many things that are just myths and distortions and where happiness is to be found, where strength lies, how alone we really are, how incapable we are of whatever And so it's quite a journey usually to open to the truth. And I'm wondering if you could talk about what's helped support you in finding that sense of truth and how might we think about that journey? Mm -hmm. Well, I lived in fear most of my life. You know, I I literally, I, I, you know, I lived in a dictatorships in which we were afraid, you know, and I lived in a house that particularly was bugged. Our phones were bugged. Our rooms were bugged. Our cars were bugged. Everything was spied on in our home because of our proximity to Saddam Hussein. And that stayed a secret. The code my family told me is never tell anybody about our relationship with him. Like that is the code that I had to keep. And so I came to America. I was 15 years of me being in America. And I kept that secret so scared of uttering even his name while I am in America in the middle of like in my garden. Like that fear stayed with me. Later on, when I wrote my memoir, I was like, how do I express fear? Because it's so tangible for me. Like it's it's like this piece of metal. I could touch it, you know? And the turning point was meeting a woman in Congo. I, I was leading Women for Women International at that time. And I was in Congo and I meet this woman who was just been raped her nine-year-old daughter her 21 22-year-old daughters all were raped they were pillaged after that everything was burnt in their home and when i met her she literally only had address on that the neighbors gave her after she was left naked after the rape and the slipper she was wearing she made out of garbage and so she's sitting in front of me nambitu was her name in her mid-50s 
And she tells me the story. And I worked in women in war from Afghanistan to, at that time, was Bosnia and Kosovo and Congo and Rwanda and all of that. And it never stops hurting the heart. I mean, and I always was determined like the day I stop crying is a day I should worry about myself, you know, so it's always a heartbreaking experience. And so with this woman, at one point, she said, I never told anybody but you the story. So I tell her, I'm a storyteller. Let me tell you how this works. I usually take stories like yours. I go to America. I tell the world about it. Then I raise money for your country from the story. Then I bring it back to your country, but it's not to you. You know, a small portion will be to you, but it's going to be to massive number of women. But if you want me to keep this one a secret, I shall keep this a secret. Don't worry, right? She looks at me, and this is an illiterate woman, and she said, if I can tell the whole world what happened to me, I would, but I can't. I would, so other women would be spared from going through what I've been through. But I can't, you can, you go ahead and tell the world, just not to the neighbors. And that was perhaps the most humbling experience of my life because I am this educated feminist, women's rights activist, humanitarian woman shouting for women to get their independence and rise and da, da, da. And I was hiding behind all of them. And they happened to be poor women. I was hiding my truth, staying in silence behind all these other women and asking them to speak up, to tell about their rapes and tell about their abuse and break their silence. But I wasn't willing to do that. I cried for five hours after that. It was in a drive from Congo to Rwanda. And I cried the whole drive. And I came by the time I arrived at my hotel, I said, either I stay consistent to the values I'm advocating for and speak my truth and stop hiding behind them, or I leave. If I don't have the courage to do what I'm asking for, then I need, I'm not worthy to do this job. You know, it's so interesting because it's so much easier to talk about other people's stories and even criticize other people and all of that. It's so much harder to do everything that we really want to do in ourselves, you know, mm -hmm. and we are in an era of judgment. We so easily judge others. So when I came to that conclusion, I said, finally, I decided I am going to tell my story. And it was the scariest thing I've done. It was like jumping off the cliff, not knowing if I will land or not. It was breaking my silence and it had to do with something with someone who is a dictator. I was scared of everyone. I was scared of my people. I was scared of Americans. I was scared of governments. I was scared of everyone. But I was like, I'd rather die stripping myself naked than being in my fear, right? Courageous act. Well, Zainab, I'm just in awe of you, really. <laughs> I am of you, actually. You are my inspiration and my teacher in so many ways and across the times. And I'm so, so appreciative of who you are. Thank you. This has been an amazing conversation. I'm just going to, I'm going to have to listen to this one again and again and again and again, truly. You're, you're wonderful. And it's always an honor to help give voice to your work and your being. It's, it's amazing. It's great to see you again. And if you would, all those of you listening would like to learn more about Zainab and her work, please visit ZainabSalbi.com. It's Z-A-I-N-A-B-S-A-L-B-I.com. Thank you. Thank you. I am so grateful to you. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Sharon's different offerings, her new book, Real Life, or any of her online teaching events, you can visit SharonSalzberg.com. This has been the Meta Hour podcast, brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. And as always, may you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy, and may you live with ease.